Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So I want to, John chapter 3, John chapter 3. As you're turning there, I, um, I do want to draw your attention to uh, some graphics up on the screen. Maybe you've never seen this before. This is um, in the Queens Museum of Arts in New York City. This is called the Panorama of New York City. What you're seeing is the world's largest architectural model. This architectural model displays all of the buildings in New York City. It's basically 10,000 square feet. It took over three years to build. It was premiered in the 1964 World's Fair. It's a scale of one inch to 100 feet. So do you want to know how tall the, the Empire State Building stands in this model? 15 inches tall. The Statue of Liberty, two inches tall. There were over a hundred different craftsmen that worked to put together this miniature model. 830,000 tiny little buildings made of wood and plastic. And they used aerial maps and other things to, to basically get this large-scale New York City down into a miniature model. Now think about just the, 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 the unique thing that this is. All of the beauty and grandeur of the greatest city in the United States, the largest city, one of the most famous cities in all the world, New York City, has been condensed down into this miniature model, this small-scale model. And the question is, can you really put all of New York City in, in a little model? Well, yes, if you're just basically just putting plastic together, but think about all the intricacies of New York City. All the trees, all the landmarks, all the buildings, to put that into just a miniature little model, this panorama of New York City. Now you may say, well, why in the world are you showing us this little miniature model, not really miniature, it's 10,000 square feet, of, of New York City? Here's why I'm telling you about this. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, has said this about John 3.16. He said, John 3.16 is the Bible in miniature. In other words, what he's saying is the entire storyline of the Bible, everything that's the grandeur of the Bible, all the storylines, God's plan of salvation can be condensed down, can be packed down into one tiny little verse, John 3.16. This is the most popular passage of scripture in the entire Bible. Most of you probably have it memorized, John 3.16, and that's where we're going to camp out this morning. And it comes right on the heels of what we saw last week with Nicodemus. If you remember, this is still a conversation Jesus is having with this religious ruler, Nicodemus. And what did Jesus tell Nicodemus? You must be born again. The Holy Spirit must come and sovereignly open your eyes. He must open your heart. God has to do this great work of salvation. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, Jesus must be lifted up so that when you look to Jesus, you will be saved. And so what follows here from John 3:16 on is a fuller explanation of salvation. 
a fuller explanation by Jesus on what's going on and what the need is in our salvation. And so we're going to travel this familiar pathway. John 3.16, all of you could probably, most of you in this room could probably recite it. And we're not going to do it right now, but you could probably all recite it. Some of you, even in the King James, that you remembered growing up, were so familiar with this. But this one passage of Scripture is so important for us to understand the entire storyline of the Bible. It is the Bible in miniature. Everything about God, everything about the world, everything about us, everything about God's plan is packed down into this one passage of Scripture. And so let's read together John three sixteen through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's a famous passage of Scripture, and we could easily just gloss over it and just assume that we understand the full implication of, of what it means. But what I want to show us this morning are, are five essentials Five truths that this passage of Scripture gives us about the storyline of the Bible, about our need for salvation. And so here's the first, the source of our salvation. The source of our salvation. How does John 3.16 start? For God so loved. Who does it start with? God. God so loved. Salvation does not begin with us. It's not a man-centered thing where it all starts with us. The source of it starts with God. God so loved the world. You know, you might be interested to know that nowhere else in really the whole Bible does it explicitly say that God loves the, the world, except for right here in John three sixteen, where it explicitly says it. And when it says God so loved... And the original language that so loved is in a it's an intense form. It's it's God loved so intensely. You know, love starts with God in his character. First John four, eight through ten, the, the same gospel writer of John also wrote the epistle, first John. First John four, eight through ten. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is love. It's His nature. It's His character. God is love. Salvation starts with God first loving us. But do you realize that God's love is more than just a character trait that he has. His love translated into action, into a choice. 
You know, the word there for love is the word agapeo. We get the word agape love. All throughout the Gospel of John, that word means more than just having a feeling of love. It means a conscious choice to love with action. And that's the way God loves. God loves us not just because he's love, but he chooses to show that love with action. It would kind of be like this. There may be a billionaire who really has a great love for, for kids in his community that they would have a nice hospital because there's a lot of hurting kids in his community. And this billionaire may say, you know what, I love all these kids and I really wish that they had a a state-of-the-art hospital that I could build for them because I really love these kids. Now, will we doubt the billionaire's love? He he really loves these kids. He, He talks about how he loves them. But what would really prove his love? Would he just talk about how much he loves these kids or would he actually build a hospital? You see, for him to truly show love, he would have to show it with action by actually doing something concrete, doing something specific to express that love. And that's exactly what God does. God is more than just love. He is love. It's his character. But his love always translates into action, into a choice to do something radical. And that's the second thing we see. So number one, the source of our salvation is God. It all starts with God. It starts with God's love. It all starts with God. But the second thing we see here is the scope of our salvation. Not just the source starting with God, but the scope. What's the scope? For God so loved the the world. God so loved the world. Now, to Nicodemus, this would have been a little radical. Because Nicodemus is a Jew. And there was no doubt that God loved the Israelites. I mean, they were his chosen people. There was no doubt in their mind that God loved the Israelites, God loved the Jews. But when when Jesus here says, for God so loved the world, that's different. That's not what this Jewish man would have understood. You mean you love other people besides the Jews? You love the Gentiles? You love the world? You, you, You love people out there besides just the chosen Jews? Yes. I don't want you to think of the world in terms of it being so big. It is big. Seven billion people or so. But really the way that that John uses the word world is not the world is so big, it's that the world is so bad. Don't think in terms of bigness. Think in terms of badness. We must never think that God loved us because we were somehow worthy of that love or merited that love. Nowhere in this text do you find that God loved us because we deserved it. It does not say, for God so loved a deserving world that was all that. It doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, the word world all throughout the scriptures really means this rebellious group of people that are in opposition to God and his plan. There was nothing in us in the world that moved God to love us. What does Romans 5, 6-8 say? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows or God demonstrates his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were weak, while we were helpless, God chose to love us. God didn't say, get your act together. Try to figure it out. Do something to somehow get me to love you. No, we were weak, we were ungodly, we were separated, and God proved, God demonstrated his love by sending Jesus. This this all-glorious God who doesn't need us, 
knew that we were helpless, hopeless, and hell-bound, and looked at the world and said, I'm going to send my son for them because I love them. So the question you've got to ask is this. Why would God stoop so low to love the world? You know, we, we tend to think really highly of ourselves. God, God just has to love us. God needs to love me. I deserve God's love. That's not the point. The point is the world is so bad, the world is so evil, the world is so rebellious that God stoops down to love a world that, that he really should not have any right loving because we, we're, we're rebellious. Think about something today. How many sins have you committed today? Now, don't raise your hand and start confessing. How many sins have you committed today just in your words? Okay. Number two, how many sins have you committed with your, with your body? Let's make it a little bit more personal. How many sins have you committed today with your mind? The thoughts. Okay, so today... You will commit sin upon sin in thought, word, and deed. And a lot of you in this room will live to be 78. That's the average lifespan of an American person. So think about how many sins you're going to commit today. Multiply that by 78. I can't do the math, but figure it out. Millions upon millions of sins that you and I have committed every single day. And the amazing thing is that because of all that sin, compounding, 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 God would look down at a world of sinners and say, I love you. I love you. 2 Corinthians 5.19 God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So number one, the source of our salvation. It all starts with God so loved. Number two, the scope of our salvation. God so loved the world. But number three, we see the sacrifice, the sacrifice of our salvation. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. He gave who? His one and only son. Now, you may be surprised by John's wording. You may think it would have said, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That's not what it says. Yes, God sent Jesus on a mission, but there's great value in the word gave. That Greek word means to give something of extreme value. So when God gave Jesus, he was giving something of extreme value, the highest value. Think about giving one and only son. It reminds me of Abraham. You remember Abraham had a one and only son, Isaac, the son of the promise, and God told Abraham to go up on top of the mountain and kill your one and only son. And Abraham goes up there, and he's about ready to kill Isaac on the altar, and he hears those words from the angel of the Lord in Genesis chapter 22, 13 through 16. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and beheld behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Key word there, instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. You see, Abraham gave up Isaac, but guess what happened? Did Isaac die? No. 
Isaac was spared because God provided a substitute, a ram in the thicket. But in giving of Jesus, God did not spare Jesus. He gave Jesus. Paul says it this way in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him, gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God didn't spare Jesus, but gave him. You know, this terminology of, of giving shows up all throughout the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave him up for us all. Galatians 1, 3 through 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our Father, God. Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the question is, who gave who? I thought God gave Jesus. Yes, I thought Jesus gave himself. Yes. God joyfully gave Jesus and Jesus joyfully gave himself. Jesus says in John chapter 10, 17 through 18, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This charge I received from my Father. The Father gave Jesus. Jesus went willingly. This is called the eternal covenant of redemption. We can't quite wrap our minds around it, but the Scripture seems to indicate that before time and eternity passed, God the Father and God the Son entered into a mutual contract, a mutual covenant, where the Father would joyfully send the Son, and the Son would joyfully obey the Father, and they would complete the work of redemption. The great Puritan, John Flavel, wrote about an imagined conversation that he had that he thought maybe the father had with the son before creation. Don't ever think that Jesus went begrudgingly to the cross. Don't ever think that, you know, Jesus went there because he had to. My dad's making me do this. I mean, that's not what Jesus did. It was a joyful covenant in the eternal counsel of the Godhood that the father would send and Jesus would go And it would be this wonderful work on the cross. Listen to this imagined conversation. Um, It's an older English, so I've put it in, I've reworded it to make sense to us. But think about this conversation before the world was created between God the Father and Jesus the Son. Here's what the Father says. My son, here's a company of poor, miserable sinners. They've totally undone themselves, and, and now they're open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them. Or will satisfy in the eternal ruin of them. What shall happen to these souls that deserve to die because of their sin? And here's what the Son says to the Father. Oh, my Father, such is my love and compassion for them. Rather than let them perish eternally, I will be responsible for them. I will take their debt. I will be their representative. Bring in all your bills that I may pay what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no debt left outstanding. I'll pay what is required. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than they suffer it. Upon me, Father, be all their debt. Bring in all the bills. Basically, Jesus is saying, bring them all. Bring everything that they owe, and I will take responsibility for it. And here's what the Father says to Jesus. Son, listen. If you do that, 
you need to understand something. You're going to pay down to the last penny everything they owe. I'm not going to lessen anything simply because you take their place. If I save them, I will not save you. Listen to what Jesus says. I'm content with that, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to pay it. And although it will mean I endure your wrath, I'm content to undergo whatever it takes. That's love. Isaiah 53.10 It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. There's no division between the Father and the Son in the Trinity. The Father gave Jesus. Jesus was not begrudgingly going against the wishes of his Father. Jesus went willingly. Jesus gave willingly. Let me ask you a hard question. And at first you may agree with me, okay? So I'm going to play a little game with your mind here, okay? Is that okay just to keep you awake? Do you agree with this statement? God loves you because Christ died for you. God loves you because Christ died for you. A lot of people say, oh, that, that sounds good, amen. Yeah, God loves me because Christ died for me. Wrong. <gasps> you mean wrong. That distorts the gospel. What it makes it sound like is that God did not love you before he sent Jesus to die for you. God loved you before he sent Jesus to die for you. The reason that God, the reason that God loves you is, is that he sent Jesus. I mean, the love of God for us is the reason that he sent Jesus to die. Don't ever think that Jesus needed to somehow persuade God to love us, and that's why he went to the cross. I mean, don't ever think that God's up there and he's like, you know, I really don't want to save those people. I really do not want to save them. And Jesus is like, come on, Dad, let's do it. we got to do it. That's not what happened. God loved us before the foundation of the world, and he sent Jesus to die for us on the cross because of that love. And what did it cost him? He gave his only son. It's a Greek word that's monogenes. It means unique. One of a kind. We sometimes get confused with the King James begotten. We don't use that type of terminology, the only begotten son. What the Greek word really means is one and only, unique, special. This whole idea that Jesus is the great I am. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the complete, perfect, sinless son of God. That's what the Father gave was his one and only son. So what's the source of our salvation? For God so loved. What's the scope? The world. What's the sacrifice that he gave his one and only son? But what's the fourth thing? The surety of our salvation. Now, what do I mean by the surety? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that what? Whoever believes in him should have eternal life. Whoever believes in him should have eternal life. Now, what does the word surety mean? It means assurance. 
It means certain. It means that you've come to that point where you've personally placed your faith in Christ. You have believed in Him. You are confident of of your faith in Him. You have this confidence in Christ. Notice what it says here. Whoever believes. What kind of believing is Jesus talking about? Whoever believes. There's a lot of believing out there these days. The, the, the Greek there is a little difficult. We translate it whosoever believes. The original language, it really means the believing ones. The believing ones. Present tense believing. Always believing. You will not find in the Gospel of John any of this idea of this easy believism where you sign the card, you raise the hand, you walk the aisle, and you can live however you want. When you believe into Jesus, as we've been talking about, when you trust him fully for salvation, it means that you're committing your entire life to him. And it's not just a one-time decision. It means that you're committing your entire life day by day, every day. It's this ongoing faith that endures to the end. It's not this shallow type of believing. It is a believing into him. And there's a condition. This is not universalism. Not everybody is saved what's the condition of salvation what's the condition of eternal life you have to believe it does not say for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that everybody has eternal life that's not what it says it says whoever believes in him you know after his book love wins came out a few years ago Rob Bell, he was a former megachurch pastor, evangelical pastor. Now he's gone off the rails and he's doing tours with Oprah and he's just kind of weird. But anyway, back when Love Wins came out, that was the book that kind of outed him. Everybody's saying, listen, Rob Bell, you're the pastor of an evangelical church and your book seems to assume you seem to be arguing that there's many paths to God. You seem to be arguing that everybody goes to heaven. You seem to be arguing that there's no such thing as hell. It seems like you're a universalist. What's your answer, Rob Bell? Well, Well, Relevant Magazine asked him that question point blank. Here's your chance, Rob Bell. Set the record straight. Are you a universalist? Do all paths lead to heaven? Do you deny the reality of hell? Give us your answer, Rob Bell. The whole world's waiting. Here's how he answers it. Quote, I'm not interested in dying on any of those hills. I'm interested in dying on a hill that says there's a lot of hills and there's a lot of space here. That's what's interesting to me. Here's your chance. To stand up and say, no, I was misunderstood. Jesus is the only way. You have to believe in him. He says, you know what? I really don't want to die on that hill. There's many sincere people out there that believe that if you're just a good person or you just kind of quote unquote believe in God, you got it made. But Jesus will not let you get off the hook. You have to believe in him. Which leads to really the last issue that Jesus spends more time talking about. You've got the source of our salvation for God so loved the world. The scope, the world. The sacrifice, he gave his only son. The surety, you've got to believe in him. And the surety, when you believe in him, you have the assurance that you will have eternal life. But here's the warning. This is what Jesus spends more time on. Here's the fifth thing. The sentence of suffering. Now notice my alliteration changed. If you're paying attention, everything starts with S. Such and such of salvation, such and such of salvation. Now it's changed. The sentence of suffering. Read very carefully John 3.16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not what? Perish. Perish. You know what the word perish means in the original language? It means to die an eternal death in hell, separated from God. That's what the word perish means. It doesn't just mean to cease to exist. It really means this whole idea of, of conscious suffering in separation from God. And there's a dire sentence on all who do not believe in Jesus. What does Jesus say there in verse 17? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Well, why didn't Jesus send, why didn't God send Jesus into the world to condemn the world? Here's the answer. We're already condemned. Jesus didn't have to come and pronounce condemnation on us. We're already born condemned. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2.3, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Jesus didn't have to come into the world to condemn us because we were already condemned in the first place. He didn't have to pronounce a sentence on us. The sentence was already there when we were born. Notice what verse um, 18 says. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. I think the NIV says stands condemned. In the original language, it means this idea that you, you've come to that settled point where you are, you've rejected Christ and the sentence on you for rejecting him is condemnation and that condemnation was already there. The only way you get out of condemnation is by believing. You're born condemned. Nobody is morally or spiritually neutral before God. Every single person is born an enemy of God. Every single person is born a sinner. Every single person is born condemned because of Adam's sin. David says it this way in Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. You and I were conceived in sin, which means this. From the moment of conception, we're sinners. We inherit the sin from our parents. They inherit it from their parents. It goes all the way back to Adam. We're born condemned. Romans 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are on the flesh cannot please God. Now, here's the issue of why the gospel is so beautiful. Here's the issue of why Jesus coming and dying on the cross is so beautiful. Because if God had not sent Jesus to die, we would all be condemned. We would all perish. We would all perish justly. And here's the issue in verses 19 through 21. There's courtroom language. Notice the courtroom language that that Jesus says there in verse 19. This is the judgment. This is the verdict. This is the reality. This is the the reality of the human condition. What does he say? Here's the verdict. Here's the judgment. Light is coming to the world. Who's the light? Jesus. Jesus is the light. He's coming to the world. God sent him into the world. Jesus has come into the world. But what is the world doing? The world, the people, loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
The people loved darkness rather than the light. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. You see, what this verse is doing is saying that God is just. God is just in condemning you if you reject the light. The light has come. Jesus has come. If you reject that, if you don't believe in that, God is just in you perishing. Why? Because you love darkness. You love the darkness rather than the light. You're creeping around in the darkness, groping around in the darkness because you love the darkness. And look at verse 20. Why don't you want to be coming to the light? Because if you come to the light, you'll be exposed. And that word exposed means, you know, not just that the light's going to shine on you, but when it shines on you, you're going to feel shame and you're going to feel conviction. So here's the issue. Every single sinner loves sin, holds on to sin, and does not want the light to shine upon them because they don't want to be exposed. Think about a cockroach for a moment. Anybody friends with a cockroach? Do you know what cockroaches are? They're gross little guys. But here's the thing about a cockroach. They have a strong aversion, hatred of light. What happens when you turn lights on with a cockroach? They scatter because they can't stand the light. Cockroaches hate the light. They live in darkness. They love the darkness. What are they doing in the darkness? You might, What's a cockroach doing with his life? Here's what a cockroach does with his life, as short as it is. Actually, cockroaches have a long shelf life. They eat rotten and fermented food and cause bacteria how would you like to have that be your life man cockroach tell me a little bit about your life well you know i love living in the darkness and eating fermented food and spreading bacteria that's my life i love it but when you turn the light on man i hate it and we laugh at that and say okay that's a cockroach that's the exact thing jesus is saying here think about what people in darkness are doing you are spiritually feeding on rotten fermented stuff and you're being poisoned by the bacteria of sin and when the light of Jesus shines upon you the last thing you want to do is be convicted the last thing you want to do is repent because you love eating that poison you love being in the dark this is not a neutrality this is not where people are just neutral towards the gospel notice what it says there they hate the light they hate it why It's going to expose them. What do they love instead? They love darkness. Love, agapeo, same word. They love, they unconditionally love darkness. It's everything about them. They're obsessed with it. Darkness is their life and passion. And so here's what should happen. What Jesus is saying is, when the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ shines upon your dark life and exposes you for all the sin that you have against him, Instead of running like a cockroach and trying to hide, you should be convicted, you should be broken, and it should lead you to repent and cry out to him for mercy. As opposed to embracing the darkness, you need to run to the light. That's what Jesus is saying. And the reality is there's going to be a lot of people, when they hear the gospel, they're just going to want to hold on to their darkness. They don't want to come into the light. And here's what Jesus is is not going to let you do. Jesus is not going to let you have a middle ground. There is no middle ground here. Look at the wording that Jesus has used in this passage of Scripture. You either believe and have eternal life, or you don't believe and you perish. 
You're either saved from your sins or you're either condemned already in your sins. You either love the light or you love the darkness. You either do what is right or you do what is evil. There's no middle ground with Jesus. He's very clear here. You can't play around. You can't be in the middle like Mr. Miyagi said. You guys know the wisdom from Mr. Miyagi and Karate Kid? Some of you are like, I want to know his wisdom. You got to pick one side or the other because if you you stay right in the middle, squish, just like grape. You got to pick a side. You got to pick a side. And that's the bottom line question for every single person in this room today. What side are you on? I can't look into your heart and know what side you're on. I don't know if you believe or not believe. I don't know if you hate the darkness or you hate the light. But here's the issue. If you do not believe in Jesus, you're already condemned. You hate the light. And instead of hating the light and loving your darkness, you need to stop that. And you need to come to Jesus who was given for sin and believe in him that you might have eternal life and not perish. The greatest gift of all time was given when God gave Jesus. The question for you is, what are you going to do with that gift? What are you going to do with the greatest gift given of all time? What's the source? God and his love. What's the scope? This big bad world. What's the sacrifice? Jesus. What's the surety? If you believe in him, you'll have eternal life. What's the warning? What's the sentence? If you don't, you will perish. Do you believe in Jesus? You see, last week and this week, the message has been the same. Jesus has been lifted up for you to see. Nobody can leave this room today saying, I don't know how to get saved. I don't know who Jesus is. I don't know what Sean's talking about. It's not for lack of information. Nobody can leave this room. You are all accountable. And that makes it a hard thing. Every single one of you are accountable for the message that you've heard today. So when you leave this place, you're accountable for truth. You're accountable to how you're going to receive that. You're accountable for what you're going to do with that. Will you be one who stands on the day of judgment and you're in Christ? Or will you stand on the judgment and be condemned because you rejected Christ? The light has come. The question is, are you holding on to darkness? Are you coming to the light? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He says, can you gaze upon him without tears as he stands before you as the picture of agonizing love? Pray that Christ would print the image of his bleeding self upon the tablets of our hearts all day long. Jesus is standing before you today. And he is the picture of agonizing love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What are you going to do with the gift that God has given? Let me ask you to bow your heads.
you to do a work here this morning. And we ask you to do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.